Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. Um, slightly thinner crowd here in person, but it's going to hot up this afternoon. But we've got a lot of people online, which is which is great. So, uh, in this session, I'm going to talk about steps four through nine, um, which sounds like an awful lot, but I I want to keep this I want to keep this very simple. The actual mechanics of the program. Uh, I'll tell you the little thing. I, so I did the steps when I was new. Uh, and I wouldn't give you tuppence for how I did them. Uh, looking back, you know, if, if you had big book technicians reviewing how I did the steps the first time, they'd be that that they'd hate it because I I didn't follow any of the formats. It just I just did what my sponsor asked, and it was roughly what was in the big book, but nowhere near precise. But it worked. I didn't have a drink, and my relationships with other people got better as a result of it. Uh, I made amends. I don't think very well, but I made the amends. So I think the important thing with the steps is to do them and not to worry, uh, too, especially the first time, not to worry too much about them, but to try to do them simply and briskly and get through it because you've got the rest of your life to, to, to redo them. And I'll say one thing about this redoing steps business. Uh, one of the people that has influenced me the most in AA is a chap called Paul Martin, who uh, uh, died with 60 odd years of sobriety in Chicago. And he says that when he was 15, 16 years sober, he discovered he, he was given the idea of redoing all 12 steps and not just having done the steps, the first nine steps once, living in 10, 11 and 12. And he talks about his experience of um, uh, people coming to him with 10, 15, 20 years of sobriety with compulsive behavior, acting out, depression, apathy, anxiety, boredom, and redoing all of the steps from scratch and these symptoms disappearing. And now, I, I, there are lots of different approaches here and I don't want to dismiss anyone else's, but I've gone down uh, rabbit holes with the steps over the years. And uh, one phrase which did the rounds a few years ago was people would phone me up and say, I wanna have a new experience. Um, and people going to lots of different people to do the steps, this person and that person, ringing up people in different states, people ringing up people in different countries as though there's some special pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and that the last rainbow didn't work but there's a pot of gold at the next rainbow looking for rainbows with pots of gold at the end of them uh, and, and special deep experiences and uh, I think I'm with Paul Martin on this so keep it simple just redo it now redoing the steps doesn't mean doing the same thing again I'll tell you why. Uh, if you've got a mirror, you wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to, there's no point in looking in the mirror today. I looked in the mirror five years ago. What am I going to see today that I didn't see five years ago? Well, you're going to see yourself as you are today. And so with the steps, I don't need a new special method. I don't need to do a different method each time. Uh, as though I've worn out the old method. Um, just like with a mirror, you look in the mirror the same way every time and you don't wear the mirror out by looking in it so I, I do 
I do pretty much, there are small variations, but I pretty much do the same thing between steps four and step nine. Um, and also another phrase which strikes terror into my heart in AA is when people talk about working on themselves. I've been working on myself and it's how, I don't know how to do that. Um, I went through a phase for four or five years where I bought lots and lots of books. Um, and I did some, I read an awful lot about codependency and I did some, as it's called, inner child work. And there's now there's nothing wrong with any of those. If they help you, then that's marvelous, but they didn't help me. Uh, I just became far better educated about how and why I was so messed up, but they didn't provide a solution because it was me trying to work on me trying to work on me. And I'm firmly convinced now that the steps four through nine are this. In step four, I catalog some things. I don't analyze anything, I catalog. Step five, I communicate what I've cataloged to another human being. In step six, I say, I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. I would like this to change. In step seven, I commit myself to change taking place. In step eight, guess what? We catalog again. Uh, now, in a sense, we've already done it in step four. Step four includes a list of things I've done wrong. But in step eight, I look a little more closely. I make sure that I've got the, I'm wearing the right pair of glasses. It's a slightly different pair of glasses in step eight. And I'll come to that. And then in step nine, step five, I disclose things to people. And in step nine, I disclose things to people, specifically the people I harmed. So it's writing, you write, have a conversation, little realization, little prayer, you write, you have another conversation, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I do not work on myself at any point in this whole procedure. I catalog. Now, one must catalog, I think, as carefully as one can and really tell the truth. Um, and I'll give an example. I'll give, I, what I'll do is I'll give you one example of inventory in step four to show you how, how I do it. And it's simply how I do it. People do it differently and that's fine. You listen to five different big book workshops or podcasts and everyone's got their own angle. And that's, and everyone claims to rule, I'm doing it by the book. I'm doing it exactly as laid out in the first 164 pages. And if I had a penny, but every time someone said that their method was exactly as laid out in the big, none of these methods are exactly the same, but everyone's got their own text. So it's fine. I do it my way. You do it your way. It doesn't matter. Um, it's the spirit behind it. I think and the principle behind it. That's why my first step four, when I was as honest as I could be, I wrote down what I could see and told another human being and it gave me the relief I needed. Um, but to get, to give an example, so there are three inventories in step four in the big book. Uh, the first one is about resentment. The second one is about fear. The third one is about my uh, intimate relationships, if I can put them as delicately as that, the so-called sex inventory. Um, uh, 
in my case, the, the, the most important one is the resentment inventory, because that really covers, that covers everything. And resentment, as I said earlier, is, is any situation where something happens and I react negatively towards it. So it's not just grinding resentment in the ordinary sense. It's almost like a technical term in, um, uh, uh, in AA. The way physical craving, the craving and physical craving doesn't mean the same thing as in the language. Obsession and mental obsession doesn't mean the same thing as in the language generally. And resentment doesn't mean the same thing either. When it talks about the examples of, well, how do you figure out who you're resentful at? Um, uh, where is it? Uh, it talks about anger. We asked ourselves why we were angry. So it's not just resentment, it's anger as well. Okay, what else? Uh, where we feel hurt or threatened, where we feel sore, where we feel burned up, where we have a grudge, where we feel injured, where we feel others are interfering with our lives. So that really covers any negative emotional disturbance, including fear. And then fear gets carved out and looked at separately. So what we're really looking at is why am I so upset? And when I'm upset, it feels like you're an archer and you've just shot an arrow and it's hit me in the heart. That's what upset feels like. I'm hurting, it's your fault, or it's their fault, or it's this political party, or it's the laws of physics, or it's the way the country is, or it's this set of rules or regulations, or it's what she said, or it's what she is thinking, or it's what he is. It's always out there. And that's the whole, that's the whole problem here, is that I come to the program as a supreme victim as the hero of my own dream, where I'm at the center and everyone is shooting arrows at me. And I'm, there's a wonderful phrase in the big book, the aggrieved one. I was aggrieved and it was legitimate and it was justified. And the only way I ever got over anything was because something else happened which would distract me. And now I'm upset about that because it's closer to the action. But I never got over anything. And so whenever I would go back to the town I grew up in, or as Philip Larkin said, the town I failed to grow up in, when I went back to the town I failed to grow up in, all of the old hurts were still there. When I went back and saw my mother, all of the old hurts were still there, unprocessed. All I'd done was temporarily forget them. These weren't old wounds. These wounds, these were wounds which continued to fester as open sores but which I wasn't even noticing because I had a different wound, which was more acute, which I, I was paying attention to. But I, over the years, I just built up more and more and more of these wounds. And the good news, and I suppose the bad news, is that I was the originator of all of this upset. And it really had almost nothing to do with anyone else. And the resentment inventory if it doesn't reveal to me that I am the cause of all my upset, something has gone wrong. If anyone else has any part in my upset, then the job is not yet done. And I'll give you, I'll give you um, an example. Uh, <clears throat> so I, for a living, I type things on a computer and then I send them to people and then they look at them and they say, thank you. And then they give me money. That's what I do. 
Um, and once I, I typed some things on a computer and I sent it to someone and she wasn't happy at all. And she wrote this very long email back about how unhappy she was and all the ways in which all the things I'd written were very, very stupid things to write. And how could anyone write anything as stupid as that? And I felt I, I was once more the aggrieved one. Now, what it looked like was I was perfectly innocently going through my day, just doing my best. And then this dreadful harridan of a woman had the temerity to launch into my life and, and, and fire torpedoes at me. And I was hurting and it was unfair. Now, what does inventory show me? So we have the so-called columns where we write things down. First column. Um, I don't think I'm breaking her anonymity, but she's not in recovery and I'm not going to tell you her surname, but Gillian. There we go. First, first column, I'm angry at Gillian. Uh, column two, uh, I'm angry, but she criticised me in an email. Now, already, I'm slightly embarrassed. Okay, so I'm upset because, you see, I, what you put in the second column is not some fancy story. The way I told the story initially, it seems why I should be angry seems to completely justified. You're all identifying with me at this point. You felt the same thing, but uh, it sounds so, you write it down, it's so petty. I'm resentful at Gillian, why? She criticized me in an email. Already a little voice is saying in my head, is that all? Is that it? And you're a grown man and you're upset that someone didn't write what you wanted them to write in an Okay, fine. So already the magic is working just by state, no story, no narrative, no great big drama, no histrionics, the facts. What did she do? She criticized me in an email. Now, what I used to do when I wrote the third column, this affects my, which areas of life does it affect? I don't, if you, if you ever heard of step five, um, old school, then you'll hear people say, I'm resentful at this person for that reason. This affects my pride, self-esteem, personal relations, sex relations, ambition, security, pocketbooks. This affects all of these areas. And you're like, yeah, okay, I agree with you. But one, by the time you've heard that a hundred times with a hundred resentments, you're like, what are you learning from this? What does this even tell you? So what it affects those? Of course it affects those. But what someone tipped me off a long time ago that there are a couple of questions which get which are going to get answered later anyway, but let's answer them now in relation to these so-called areas of self. Self-seeking, where was I self-seeking? And where was I afraid? And our fear is where there's something which I want, but whose acquisition is uncertain. I might get it, I might not. Or there's something I've got that I might lose, whether it's a, a pound note or a marriage or a job or a limb, doesn't matter what it is, something I'm gonna lose. And you say, well, what are you after? And so personal relations, how the person should relate to me. So the reason I'm upset is not because Gillian criticized me in an email, it's because I have a plan. She should thank me for my work, 
praise me and tell other people how marvelous I am. That's why I'm upset is because she didn't follow my script. I don't realize I have a script for other people until they fail to follow it. Now I know I have a script for them. When everyone is behaving themselves, I don't notice it. People are so nice when they're behaving themselves. I love everyone. They don't follow the script. I no longer love everyone. So I discover the reason I'm upset with Gillian is because Gillian didn't follow my script. If this were a sexual arena, arena in which I have a script for her, it'd be sexual relations. How should this person relate to me sexually? But it doesn't stop there. So why do I want her to, um, uh, to thank me, to praise me, uh, and to report favorably on me to others? You see, behind the scripts are outcomes I'm after in my life. What outcome am I after? I'm after this agency continuing to send me work and referring me to other agencies so that they send me work. Why? I want money. Why? I want to pay my bills. I want to go on fancy holidays. I want to buy whatever I want to buy in the supermarket without looking at the price. So there's a whole plan. Everything I want to do with money, all the reasons I want money are behind my resentment against Gillian. So under pocketbooks, which is about money, what do I want? And I, I actually write figures. What, what figure is at stake here? Well, my annual income is at stake. If this agency stops giving me work, if I get a bad reputation, if in fact I'm as bad and stupid as she says I am, then I don't deserve to earn any money. So my whole income is at risk, is under threat. So pocketbooks. What am I going to do with the money? I'm going to pay for my basic needs, uh, security, the things anyone would need to be okay, to live and thrive reasonably well in the world. But there are ambitions. Not only do I want uh, uh, for my income, um, the satisfaction of my basic needs to be secure. Uh, I want to be thought of as, I won't say exactly what I do for a living, but the best typist in the world, certainly better than other people. So good in fact, that people throng to my doors and I spend my whole time having to bat them off saying, I, no, I can't possibly, I've got too much work already. So the ambition is to have such a strong pipeline of work I never need to worry about marketing myself, adjusting what I do to fit the needs of the world. I want an easy time. I just want work to flow in, simple, easy, lucrative work, which doesn't require me to learn anything, change, adapt, meet other people's needs, accede to their wishes or anything. I want an easy life and I want to be praised and loved and, and, and placed on a pedestal, in fact. That's what I want. I want to be on the pedestal. I don't want to just be an ordinary person. I want to be an amazing person. And I need that to be recognized very overtly by people. So the reason that I'm upset is not because of Gillian. It's because I have a blueprint for my life and Gillian ain't playing ball. She isn't following the script and that is threatening the outcomes. And we haven't even got to the worst bit. The worst bit is pride and self-esteem. 
pride for the purposes of this inventory is where I say, um, uh, I, I imagine how Gillian thinks of me. Now I've got a pretty strong clue because there's this email, which is exhibit A, but so she, think, she thinks I'm stupid, lazy and arrogant. And I want her to think of me as smart and brilliant and effective. I think of myself as, and the, really the same thing, self-esteem is usually an, a mirror image of the pride. So not only have I got scripts for other people, outcomes that I'm attached to, which are constantly under threat, but I've got an image of myself that I need to uphold. And I'm so identified with that image. If that image is threatened, I feel I am literally at threat as a per under risk as a person. Um, and I've heard people say very often when people write inventory and they're criticized, they will say under security in their first draft, it doesn't stay there because we have a conversation about it, but they say under security, I need to feel safe in the workplace because being criticized feels so much like a physical attack as though you are literally under threat and you're not remotely under threat. No one is coming at you with a baseball bat. And it's very interesting. It always indicates that self-esteem is the thing which is actually affected there. When there's no physical threat, but you feel unsafe, the image of oneself as a person, like if your image ceases, if your image goes poof and no longer exists, then you go poof and no longer exist. And it's very common when people lose their career, not just their job, but their career, they will commit suicide because there is nothing left. They have ceased to exist. Same when a divorce happens. If, as I heard someone say many years ago, if I believe I am the husband and my wife threatens to divorce me, if she succeeds, the husband literally ceases to exist. There is no more husband. There is now this dreadful thing called the ex-husband. Now, if you think you are the husband and the husband ceases to exist, you literally cease to exist. So you've got to hold on to those roles. So this is all about me playing roles in the world and being so identified with those roles. If those roles are, are hurt or threatened or affected in any way, I feel this is a mortal risk. This is a mortal threat to my very existence and I have to fight. So what do I do? I reply to the email. So in this case, I didn't. I had the sense to talk it through uh, and I wrote, Dear Gillian, thank you for your email. I will implement your suggestions. Have a wonderful rest of the day. But the point of all of this, the point of all of this is that my upset in any situation, no exceptions, is down to a blueprint I have for my life, which I'm constantly measuring reality against. And it is as though I have gone through the world sleepwalking, sowing the land with landmines, which are rather unusual landmines, because when you step on them, I blow up. 
And the ego is so clever because it allows me to do this without me realizing I'm doing. I don't know the landmine is there until you step on it. And then I don't realize the landmine has anything to do with me. I think it's you that's doing this. Whereas I've set you up. I've, I've strung the trip wire for you to trip over. Uh, so if I'm going to be happy, there is only one thing to do. I have to drop demands and recognize that uh, my happiness depends on my adjustment to reality, not my forcing of reality to match my blueprint. And it's possible, even with very grave things, to drop the demands. Uh, many years ago, maybe ooh, uh, 20 Yes, over 20 years ago, I, I had uh, hepatitis A, which I contracted. And then very soon after I had hepatitis B, which I contracted, nothing to do with my drinking, that my, it wasn't a drinking related thing, the hepatitis. Uh, and I was extremely ill and they didn't know the doc. I said to the doctor is, am I definitely gonna get through this? She said, definitely no. We're gonna do our best, but there's nothing we can particularly do. We just have to hope your body really fights this off. And my body did indeed fight it off, but I was very worried initially. And I couldn't, I, I was so tired. If you've ever had hepatitis, it's an extraordinarily debilitating disease. And for months I was like, just lying down and I could barely move for the first few weeks. I would be, stretching out there would be a glass of water on a little table next to where I was lying and all I had I was very thirsty all I had to do was stretch out my hand grab the glass of water and drink it to satisfy the thirst but I felt too weak to stretch out my hand it took it could take an hour before I could summon the strength to stretch out my hand I wasn't doing well okay uh, but at some point I had some program at the time and I was a few years sober, I thought I better accept this because I can't stand the pain of not accepting it. And I dropped the demand that I be physically well. I dropped the demand that I recover. And I was at peace, even though the center of my body hurt and I could barely move because it was very painful physically as well. So it's possible, and, and I've other things in my father's illness and death, uh, my mother's, my mother who was in her 90s, her gradual deterioration. Um, as soon as I drop the demands that things be other than they are, I find I can be at peace, even if things are painful. And pain and suffering are different things. Pain is just part of the, it's just one of the instruments in the orchestra of human emotion. Suffering is, uh, there's a, there's a symphony by the, the Danish composer Carl Nielsen, where uh, it's a, I think it's the fifth, it may be one, maybe the, it's either the fourth or the fifth, where there is a snare drum. If you ever heard a snare drum, they're, they're, they're an ugly little instrument, and they tend to be used to create particular effects in particular pieces. But in this particular symphony by, by Nielsen, uh, there's a snare drum which goes rogue. It's very loud and it's running, it's playing its own uh, rhythm completely against what the rest of the orchestra is doing. 
Now, if you hear symphonies with snare drums, you won't notice the snare drum. It's just part of the overall effect of what the orchestra is playing. In, in this symphony by Nielsen, boy, do you notice the snare drum. You can't listen to what the rest of the orchestra is doing. You're so distracted by this snare drum. And that's, what's, that's the difference between pain and suffering. The instrument is the same, but suffering has got this, this element of non-adjustment to reality this complete resistance to reality. And that is the thing that's completely intolerable. Pain, I find, is perfectly acceptable. Suffering is unacceptable. And suffering tends to yield, in my experience, to acting out on some compulsion or other and eventually relapse. Um, so the forgiveness procedure on 66, 67, number one, drop the demands by recognizing I don't need the demands to be met to be happy because if I get the demands met, I'll be frightened that they'll stop being met. Um, and to look at the other person with, to, uh, with compassion, which is a choice, to look at the world from their point of view. I remember I was very resentful against my mother for, for a very long time and I prayed uh, to look at things from her point of view. And I remember on her 80th birthday, I went round, she opened the door and I didn't see my mother. I saw a frail old woman and it changed everything. So I saw the, I saw the world through her eyes just for a moment and I wasn't able to hold anything against her after that. Um, to drop demands, to drop the moralization as well, because behind every resentment is moralization. Like I'm in a position to dictate to the world and to point the bony finger of condemnation at others. When I'm full of error myself, I'm not full of sin, I'm full of error, which is not a moral question. It's, a, it, it's like in, in math, algebra. If you get the wrong answer, you're not sinful, you're not bad, but you don't know how to do algebra. So when I get things wrong, it's because I don't know how to do life. There we go. It ultimately, it all boils down to ignorance, not badness. So I'm in no position to moralize about other people and what they do wrong and what they do right, inverted commas. Uh, so, so dropping the demands, dropping the moralization, empathy, and, uh, and trying to extend love towards people. What can I do for them? God, save me from being angry, thy will be done. How can I be helpful to this person? I've never prayed that and not had the prayer returned with ways in which I can be helpful. Maybe even just stay out of their way and be pleasant if you walk past them. Um, it's the, after this, this particular, because that's the, the spine of the ego is getting rid of the internal sense of inadequacy and sinfulness and badness by projecting it onto other people and seeing all the badness out there. Um, you break that spine and the ego uh, is severely handicapped after that point. Um, the questions on page 67, uh, I'm going to, uh, there's a lot that can be said about 439. So I'm just going to dot on individual points rather than trying to do things comprehensively. 
the upset question, the resentment question is a major question. The others, uh, more questions of detail. Uh, when I write the pages at 67 questions, there are eight questions I discern in that middle paragraph of 67. What were my mistakes? Which is, I read to be, how am I looking at this wrong? And how should I look at it instead? And if I don't know, I ask grown-up. I ask someone that's not emotionally involved in the situation to help me look at it differently. And I'm not looking at it right until I'm looking at it at peace. Uh, Self-seeking, what am I after? Frightened, what am I frightened of not getting or losing? Dishonesty, where am I lying? Unreasonably concealing things. One doesn't reveal everything to all people at all times. There's always degrees of concealment, but it's where, where am I concealing things that should be disclosed? Where am I misrepresenting the truth? Where am I scheming or plotting? Blame. Um, uh, where did I start the ball rolling is a good way to come at where am I to blame? And then faults, what are my character defects and wrongs? Where have I harmed someone else? Uh, one point about the fear inventory, there's, there's uh, a question Bill asks on page 68, where once we've catalogued our fears, we say, well, uh, we asked ourselves why we had them. And then rather than letting us answer, he doesn't trust us to answer the question adequately. He says, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Uh, which means I take it to be true. I'm frightened because self-reliance has failed me. Now, let's say you're in a job and you're messing it up because you can't ask for help and you won't be told how to do things. Now, that's a very clear way in which, why, why am I frightened of losing my job? Because I'm being constantly criticized, I'm getting it wrong. How is self-reliance failing me? Well, I'm trying, I'm not asking for help. But how do you deal, how, do, how does that answer, how does that question work? when you hear that country A, which is a nuclear power, has gone to war with country B, and we also have nuclear weapons, and we're having a great big argument with country A about the fact it's invaded country B, which is our friend. And I'm frightened of nuclear war. How has self-reliance failed me there? I have no part in this. I'm not the president of country A, or country B, or country C. In fact, I don't... I, <laughs> I barely I have a vote in country C, but I'm one of millions of people. This is not happening because I'm failing to ask for help. So, but what I do with the big book is I take it to be true, first of all, and then say, well, how, how could I understand this in a way that it is true? And what is self? Um, someone helpfully suggested to me that self is... Um, uh, false images I have of myself. And the book talks about us being actors who are in the world to play particular roles. So I, I have a, an occupation, so I'm a worker and I'm a sponsee and I'm a sponsor and I'm a husband uh, and I'm a son and I'm a brother and I'm an uncle and I'm all of these different things. Or am I? This is the point. These are the roles that I'm playing. And if you imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen Macbeth, and I hope this isn't going to be a spoiler for anyone that's planning to see a production or a film of Macbeth or even read the play, but there's a lot of blood on the carpet 
by the end of Macbeth. Um, so all sorts of people have got blood on their hands and all sorts of other people don't make it as far as the end of the play. So, you know, people start falling like nine pins and you think, who's next? If you were an actor in a production of Macbeth and you, you temporarily forgot yourself and believed yourself to be playing one of the parts and you started seeing that there were plots and schemes and murders and daggers in the night, you would be mortally terrified and you would be right to be frightened. The character should be frightened in that situation. If you are the actor, you're not frightened. You're going to go home on the bus with everyone else at the end of it. You're fine. Your character is going to get killed night after night. You're all right. No problem here. If you forget that you're the actor and think that you're the character, you're at permanent risk. You would be psychotic not to be frightened. If I am in the world playing all of these different roles and even thinking that I am, that what I fundamentally am is a physical form running around the world. As a friend of mine said to me many years ago, you're 90% made of water, whatever the percentage is. You're 90% made of water on a planet where water evaporates at room temperature. You're made of stuff, which is, and people are very easy to snap and break and slice up and do all sorts of terrible things to. It's not the safest form to take if you want to be secure is the human form. It really isn't. I mean, the things that can happen to a person, just open, open a biology, open a surgery <laughs> textbook and you'll discover all the things that can happen inside a person. Uh, I handle lots of medical records for my, for, uh, in my work and uh, uh, it's hair raising what can happen to people. Uh, for me not to be frightened, believing that what I am is a physical form with all these other things, which are you, you think your savings are perfectly secure until inflation happens, uh, over which you have no control. And then you think your investments are secure until the stock market crashes. You think your job is secure until your industry changes and your job disappears. You think your family is secure until they get sick. Nothing is secure. And not to be frightened when that is who you think you are would, as I say, be psychotic or disassociative. So self-reliance fails me. If I think I am those things, that's where myself is located in the world, I'm going to be frightened. That's why I'm frightened. Uh, the writer Anne Lamott, who I think is very good, she says, uh, death is a fairly major change of address. So I'm here on this planet to play a particular role, but I wasn't born, I'm not gonna die. I happen to be operating here right now. So I'm okay, I'm okay, my life might not be. Someone in AA in London called Pauline, uh, she had this business for 20 years uh, where and she discovered she was brilliant at it. She made huge amounts of money, well, reasonable amounts of money. Uh, but then the world changed and her career vanished as a career. It was a thing which people no longer did. Things were done differently and she lost her livelihood. And someone said to her, you're so brave, you know, having failed in business, but yet you're still so cheerful. She said, I haven't failed. The business failed. 
I haven't failed. I'm all right. That's the attitude. So I'm here to fulfill a role. Uh, doesn't matter for how long, because I'm not at risk. If I am identified with the higher power as being an extension of the higher power, I cannot be harmed. Spirit cannot be harmed. Page 28 of the big book, it says uh, that all of us can form a relationship with a living creator. Now, if you look at nature, things tend to give birth to something that resembles them. So lambs look like sheep. Uh, sheep don't give birth to figs or mackerel or avocados or giraffes. They give birth to little, little sheep. So if, if God is, if I'm a child of a living creator, I'm made of the same stuff as the higher power. The relationship is not symmetrical because if God created me, I didn't create God. So it's not a symmetrical relationship, but it's a relationship of parent and child. If that's who I am, there's nothing to be frightened of. Now I'm going to forget that 47 times a day, but that's fine. Because there's a difference between a black sheet of paper with a few white spots of paint on it and a white sheet of paper with a few black spots of paint on it. And the white sheet of paper can even be so painted in black, you can't see any of the white underneath the black, but you know it's there and you know it's real and you know that that is what the paper is. And it's currently covered in black paint. So hope and happiness have got to do with something more than how well are things going, how badly are things going. It's got to do, in my experience, with a fundamental understanding of what the truth is that underlies all things. So in step four, you get to catalog some stuff. In step five, you get to say it to other people. When I, just a footnote, when I sponsor people through step four, I get them to communicate everything they're writing to me as they're writing it. So we do step five in tandem with step four, because I can't listen to another 10 hour step five. I just can't do it. I, I listened to hundreds and I was, I would dread them for weeks. There is no way around. I, I can't do it. I can listen to all of your inventory, all of it, every word, but we're going to do it in bite-sized chunks because maybe I have ADHD. I don't know. Or I'm too self-centered to listen. I don't know. I don't know. My, but my friend Tom, who got sober in 1976, people will come to him and say, will you hear my step five? And he says, I have 40 minutes next Tuesday. They, and they say, but I have 10 hours of material. He says, you'll have to find someone with 10 hours of time. I have 40 minutes next Tuesday. And I'm like this. I will listen to your step five in 57 chunks of 10 to 15 minutes. But I can't do all of it at once. I can't. There are people that can go and talk to them. There are people that love it. I hate it. But I'll do, I'll do it on my own way. Wouldn't do for us all to be the same. Um, and but one point on step five that one thing I learned it talks on page 73 about the person or persons with whom we are to take this intimate step. So when I take step five, uh, I my inventory now I'm very good at doing it concisely, and as in consideration of other people, I keep my when I do a step four. I keep the material down to 15 minutes. It's amazing how much you can say in 15 minutes if you really try. So I get everything out on the table in 15 minutes, spares them and spares me. But it's out there. And the merit of step five comes from, I think, not from great analysis, but from mere disclosure. 
to another human being who is as kind to you afterwards as they were before. And when you hear a step five, brace yourself because you may hear things that make it very difficult for you to continue to be kind to the person. Because everyone has their own little hangups, things that they find it very difficult to hear about. And what I've learned is that when those things, I hear things that I find very difficult, the absolute poker face, afterwards continue to pray for the person, and then it settles down. Then the love and compassion comes a little bit later on. But we, I've, got, I've still got little hang-ups, things that I find very difficult to hear. But I'm very careful when I hear those things to show compassion to the person who did them. Because that's the healing in step five, is, the, is having someone see past all the things you've said to the person that lies inside. Because they're now connecting with who you really are, which is child of a living creator. Uh, step six, I don't think they were wrong when they kept it to one paragraph in the book. Uh, I get to step six, I have two buttons, red button, green button, red button, press halt on the process, stay as I am, press green button, proceed, pick one. When you move from one city to another, you can't take certain districts with you. You have to leave the whole city. Uh, and it's like that with, when I look at step six, I'm looking at letting go of living life based on my welfare and your conduct and flipping it to living a life based on my conduct and your welfare. Now, when I do the steps now, I run through the first nine steps once a quarter, very brief affair. If you keep your kitchen clean, spring cleaning takes a couple of hours. If you don't, it'll take a few days or weeks, or you have to get professional contractors in. Um, so when I'm looking at six and seven, it's not black and white. It's not like my life is entirely based on ego and I'm flipping it to entirely based on good. In as far as it's still based on ego, I'm looking at eliminating that and living in a new way. And eight and nine. Um, actually, I'm going to say one thing about eight and nine uh, today. I said to my other half, who is not in recovery, doesn't need to be in recovery, I said, do you ever feel guilty? And he said, when I do something wrong, I clean it up straight away and then there's no need for guilt. That's how normal folks, that's how healthy folks, normal folks and healthy folks, those are different categories, just FYI. That's how healthy folks deal with guilt. When they realize they've got guilt is the sign, it's not pathological, it's the sign that you've done something, something needs to be adjusted. Sometimes it is a perception. Sometimes the guiltometer goes off when nothing wrong has happened because the guiltometer is badly calibrated. But as a fundamental phenomenon of human experience, it is a sign that I've done something wrong which needs to be corrected. If I correct it straight away, it's like a fire alarm. If you get rid, if you turn the fire alarm off and you open the window to get rid of the smoke from the bacon or whatever it is, the fire alarm will stay off. If you don't open the window, that when you turn the fire alarm off, it'll go on again. 
So you've got to get rid of the reason why the guilt is there, not just get rid of the guilt. Um, but in eight and nine, my experience of how change actually takes place. So I'm a, a one of I'm I'm generally very bad tempered. I know I might come across as mild mannered, maybe not, but I'm very bad tempered and I'm very quick to get angry, and I'm it's a deadly combination. I think very quickly and my mouth moves even quicker. And I can be very unpleasant on the phone to people and very unpleasant in person. And when I get to eight and nine and there have been problems in this area, um, I don't fix myself. I can't fix myself. Now, when I cross the line, I apologize to someone, uh, but there's a there are there's lower level stuff where what needs is a change in behavior, and what I my experience of, of repeatedly doing the steps is that I simply discover myself behaving differently towards people with no effort on my part. The very fact of four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine causes change to take place without me making change take place. So there's there's no there's there's no endlessly reconstructing myself. I don't need to do it. I need to just open myself up. Uh, the same way that lots of wounds just need to be allowed to, to dry and heal in their own way. Uh, but on eight and nine, um, I've sponsored a lot of people, as I said earlier, who have relapsed or have got into hot water, shall we say, 10, 20, 30 years sober. And the question is, one of the questions I ask is, um, have you completed amends? And invariably, there's one of these three categories. Either I never completed amends. Category number two, I completed the amends. Okay, how many? Both of them. <laughs> all five, all 10. And I'm like, maybe I'm just a really bad person, but I can negatively affect 15 people in a day. Um, there are a lot of people that were on my step eight list. And I'm a turtle, not a skunk. I retract from the world rather than spraying people with my venom or whatever skunk spray people with the, the, the stuff, the skunky stuff. So my step eight list was short on size goody two shoes in some ways. Uh, so that there's let there was less very dramatic stuff, but still there were scores of people. And when I added to that, the list of people I'd bad mouthed, the list of categories of people I'd bad mouthed, politicians, political groups, religious groups, whole countries, ethnicities, social groups, which whenever they come up, came up in conversation, I'd go in on the, on the rampage verbally. Those are on there. What about all the things I've ever damaged and didn't pay for? or didn't repair? What about all the things I borrowed and never returned? All the things I ever stole? All the times I ignored opportunities to help people when it was my duty to help, where I passed by when I should have intervened? What about all the people I never properly thanked for how much they helped me? And you end up with a really long list 
you work through that, which can take a while. What about, and this would be a controversial thing for some people, so put cheese in your ears if you don't like controversy, but one of the things I considered was my impact on the planet, and I now carbon offset my entire life. And my fear of environmental catastrophe went as soon as I started to carbon offset my whole life, and that of my other half as well. Um, and I discovered that in lots of areas, when I clean up my mess, even if it's a small mess as part of a much bigger um, pot, the fear goes. So fear and guilt are super related. Uh, lots of things in the world previously very much troubled me. Now I give lots of, well, not lots of money, but an amount which is not huge in an absolute sense but is painful to my wallet and painful to my bank balance to a whole string of charities and causes and think tanks and in fact one particular political party and because I do that I'm doing my part I'm not someone that can be involved as an activist because I haven't got the temperament for it um, I'm just too awkward and difficult. I don't work well with people. And I get emotionally involved in things which are none of my business and I'm a big interferer. So I'm just the worst person. But I can delegate that the duties there, but pay money so that other people can do work in the world. So I am paying my way morally in the world. When I'm doing that, the fear goes, it's the weirdest thing. And when people do things to me uh, or things which affect me. I'll give you one example of a proxy amend. <coughs> in the block I live in, next door, there's a primary school and an elementary school, and there's a wooded area uh, where they had these beautiful trees. And every morning for years, I'd sit with my little cup of coffee, watching the squirrels run up and down the trees. One morning, it was a terrible noise. I looked out and there were, there were lumberjacks do you even call them lumberjacks in London? That sounds like not a London word. But anyway, there were tree surgeons, I guess they'd call them, chopping down the trees. And immediately, as an untreated Alanon, I got on the blower to the, the school. What are you doing here? What are you doing to these trees? And there was some, some guff about you know, health and safety. Everything's always health and safety, isn't it, these days? Um, and so they, they had to chop the trees down fine. And, I was rage, just raging about this. And then I, uh, there the, the was, was an organization where you can buy, uh, not the acre of land, but you pay for an acre of land to be reforested. So I paid for an acre of land to be reforested with many more trees than were cut down in this instance. And when I pressed the button on PayPal, to have the acre of forest reforested, acre of land reforested, the anger against the school went. So I make amends for things which are done, apparently, which I feel affected by. If they don't do them, well, I'll do it. And it's an amazingly powerful thing to scour every last corner of step nine. People are very diligent on step four and five. Why? because it's all about oneself. It's a very attractive exercise. If you want to remain self-obsessed, become really good at inventory. 
but then people get sketchy on eight and nine. The book is different. It says step four, uh, index of our grosser handicaps. It, it was not meant to be something which takes a year. Uh, and when I did the, the last uh, sort of time, I had to do a very, very thorough uh, step four from top to bottom was about 12 years ago because I keep up to date now. Then I hadn't kept up to date. It took about three weeks and I had a couple of hundred pages of stuff because I cleared the schedule and I did it. So it doesn't need to be more than three weeks, however much you're writing. And there's huge amounts of repetition there. Could have been more concise. Um, what's the point? The point is the book talks about being painstaking with step nine. That's the bit where it says, you really got to catch everything here. And my experience, when I catch everything there, that's what heals things. And there are a few things which don't get fully healed. I tell you where they do get healed is in step 12. When you hear people come to you with precisely the things that you can't let go of in your own past. And it happens in two ways. I was particularly cruel to a child who was my own age when I was uh, uh, 14 on a course somewhere. So we were from different parts of the country. And I've tried, the name is impossible to track down because he has the same name as a famous author. So you Google and you just find things about the author. It's a nightmare. And I could, I, I, I've, I've written, I, I, I wrote to all of the people on Facebook with this name that I could find who lived in the country in question. None of them replied. So I, you know, I did my best. I really tried to find this person. I had a name in a city and that was it. But someone came to me in step 12, a friend of a friend, and this bloke called up. He said, I'm so-and-so. I'm from the city of X, which is the same city as this kid came from, different age, different person. And he said, uh, I, I was treated very badly when I was a child by this other person in this particular situation. And it was a mirror image of where I was a perpetrator mm. of something. And I helped this bloke in AA uh, work through and recover from his suffering at the hands of this behavior. And I never, I'd never spoken to him before and I never spoke to him again afterwards. We did this single piece of work and we were done. And I was done as well. There is nothing more I can do. So even the people you can't find, there was one person, I was 27 years sober. I look once a year, I go through the list of the people I can't find. And I finally found someone after 27 years whose surname had changed. That's why I couldn't find him. But there was a brief window for six months where he was using the old surname and the new surname as a double barrel. Something was published on the internet which referred to him at that time at the crossover. So I made the connection. I paid some money to an agency in America to do some tracing. I traced him and we're now good friends again. I'm good friends with the family. We're going to visit them this summer. And I found people after 25 years, after 27 years, after 28 years, there's a small handful left. So that is the that is the thing not to give up on is steps eight and nine and to really cover everything and then the compulsions in other areas which people often go to other fellowships for fair enough if that helps go and do it but i always wonder maybe the step eight and nine isn't complete so i'm going to stop there if you can stop recording josh and um, we will be back at 3 p.m mountain time